Thank you, worship team, for leading us well in worship to our Savior. May that be our prayer to know him and to know him more. It is our aim to do that this morning through the preaching of God's word. I want to say thank you to those who filled in for me last week, to Nathan and to Chris. I've been battling pneumonia, so there's a good chance I may cough at some point in this, but just pray during that and um, we'll get back into the word after that's over. But I am very thankful to be back in the word of God with you this morning. In Psalm 139, as we close out with our fourth lesson, this wonderful Psalm, Search Me and Know Me. As you turn there, I want us to center our thoughts on one key truth this morning, and it's this, a high view of God produces a deepening hatred for sin. A high view of God produces a deepening hatred for sin. When people encounter God in the scripture, it always brings an increased awareness of and hatred for sin. After all, that's the only appropriate reaction that a finite sinful being can have when encountering a transcendent holy God. We see it, for example, on display in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah is miraculously taken into the throne room of God in a vision in Isaiah 6. There in verse one, Isaiah writes, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now listen to Isaiah's response. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah's experience. He sees the exalted God on his throne and immediately he says, I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner and I live among sinners. I shouldn't be here. We see it again in Peter's response in the New Testament. You remember the story in which Peter and, and others with him are out fishing all night long and catch nothing. And the next morning they see Jesus there on the, the shoreline and after asking them about their success that night before, he says to them, just cast your net on the other side. And in obedience to Jesus, they do just that and they haul in such a catch that it threatens to burst the very nets that they've been fishing with. And Luke chapter five, verse eight says, this is how Peter responded to this miracle. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus's feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, when we read of encounters with God in the scripture, there is a renewed sense of sinfulness, of the reality of sin and a hatred for sin. And what I want us to understand this morning is that a similar reaction should be true of us when we meditate on the person of God. 
You know, we're not promised to have the privilege in this life. We ought not to expect that God is going to give us personal visions of himself as we've just read, but we are called to meditate daily and regularly upon the person of God. And as we meditate upon the person of God, as he is revealed in his word, as we have done in Psalm 139, it ought to bring within us a similar response of not only an awareness of our sin, but a hatred for sin. Because a high view of God produces a deepening hatred for sin. This is what David will demonstrate for us at the end of Psalm 139. This is the grand conclusion that he brings us to as he thinks on all of the the personal attributes of God. You remember he's taken the perfections of God or the attributes of God and he's thought of them in a personalized way and how those aspects of God should affect him as an individual. And now this final section, this fourth component of Psalm 139 is David's response. And it's a rubric for us of how we should respond as we think on and meditate on the attributes of God. Let's begin simply by reading David's response here in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 19, all the way through verse 24. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We're continuing in this grand theme that we are to delight in the perfections of our God and continually invite his personal examination. We've been doing the first half of that theme over the last three lessons, delighting in the perfections of our God. And here David now instructs us that we ought to invite his personal examination. I won't belabor where we've been before, but I do wanna just remind you of these first three components that we've looked at in Psalm 139, each of them outlining a different aspect of God's character. Component number one was personal omniscience. He knows you intimately in verses one to six. We learned that God knows us at a level that we can't even know ourselves. He knows you through and through. He knows everything about you. Component number two, personal omnipresence. He accompanies you unceasingly in verses seven through 11. In addition to his perfect knowledge of us, the psalmist acknowledges that God is always with him. He's with him where he is. He's with him where he's been. He's with him where he will go. Every moment of our lives are laid bare before the Lord. If we go to the highest mountain or the darkest valley, there we will find him. Component number three, we entitled personal omnificence. He created you intricately, verses 13 to 18. That word omnificence means that God has perfect and infinite creative power. It's an attribute of his uh, omnipotence, of the fact that he has all power. 
David called us to think on the works of God towards us and creating us and the thoughts of God towards us. He reminded us that God has been with us even in the womb when we were unformed, when our body had yet to take shape. But even beyond that, he says, he ordained our days, both the content and the number of our days were ordained by God before they even came to be. And what all of this adds up to is the fact that God knows us more intimately and more deeply than we could possibly imagine, more deeply than we can put into words. He knows not only what is true of us, but what will be true of us in the days to come and for eternity. And through these meditations on God's character, David has stopped throughout uh, our study to respond and to take these things to heart. He's taken comfort, of course, in God's care. He's marveled at the glory of God and given him rightful worship. But here in this fourth component, we really have the the grand finale, the true response that David has and that we're to have when we think on the magnificence of who our God really is. And what we find is that a proper response to meditating on the perfections of God is a, an awareness of sin and a hatred for sin that produces a commitment to put our sin to death. So this is component number four then, personal response, a personal hatred for sin. And as we take this fourth component, it really breaks into two responses, both of them dealing with sin, one dealing with the sins of others and the other dealing with David's personal sin against God. So let's look at the first response here that we'll call a hatred for flagrant worldly rebellion. A hatred for flagrant worldly rebellion. What we have here in verse 19 is what we call an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayers in the Psalms call on God to act as the rightful just judge of all men. And it makes perfect sense when you think about the context in which verse 19 comes. Because the more that we behold the beauty and the glory and the magnitude of God's holiness, the more we should be offended at the audacity of created beings to sin against such a God. The higher you go in your view of God, the more you realize how ridiculous it is to ever think of rebelling against such a being. Who do we think we are to dare sin against such a God as this? It's as if David's been lost in his meditations of God, similar to Isaiah, beholding God in his temple. He's gotten lost in his meditations and the wonder of God. And now it's as if he opens his eyes and comes back to earth and he smells all around him the stench of sin. And it sickens him. Just as Isaiah said, not only is he a man who is impure, but he lives among a people who are impure. And it's this this flagrant sin around him, the worldliness around him that first stokes within David what we'll call a righteous indignation. Listen to the way that he responds here in verse 19. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, it's even more pointed than that. He's really calling God to execute the death penalty on these people. God, that you would put them to death put the wicked to death. 
It's a call on God to exercise his right as the holy and just judge of the universe to snuff out the life of the wicked who have set themselves intentionally against him as his enemies. He knows, as we've seen from his reflections, that God is the God who sees it all. He knows it all. He's been present for it all. Not one sin of one wicked person goes beyond his notice. And all the sins that the wicked have carried out against God and thumbing their noses at their creator. Since the time of their mother's womb are laid before God in the brilliance of his glory. And David calls on God to be just. God be just against these who have set themselves up against you. It may be that these particular wicked people he has in mind have committed some sin against David himself. We can't know that for sure. It might be that they are plotting his harm to overthrow him as the king. But what I want you to see is that it's not his own dishonor that has led him to make this prayer. It is not a sense of indignation within him over sins committed against his own person, but against the God whom he loves. It's a call to God to exercise justice. It's a good reminder to us, by the way, that only God can exercise perfect justice. It's the only one that is perfectly just and he's the only one that has the power and the capacity to bring that justice to pass. Of course, it's right and it's good that we have laws and a justice system where Romans 13 tells us government is for our good. We should have laws and a justice system to do our level best as sinful creatures to, to find justice and to bring about justice. But let's all admit on a weekly basis, we see our inability to accomplish perfect justice. But David knows that's not so with God. When it comes to the courtroom of God, he sees it as, is, as it really is. All of the, the details of the case are laid bare before him. In the courtroom of God, there's no need for cross-examination. There's no need for legal counsel. There's just a, a holy, all-knowing, perfect God who sits as judge and everyone who stands before him has nowhere to run and hide from their sin. Understand David's not denying that God is also a God of grace and a God of compassion. He's not denying the fact that the Bible teaches that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We think of that often as a New Testament passage because it is, it appears in the Sermon on the Mount. But understand that New Testament idea comes from a deeply rooted Old Testament passage that David would have been familiar with. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, we read this. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So again, this concept is not simply a New Testament concept. God's nature is not one way in the Old Testament and one way in the New. God is consistently uh, who he is all the time. He is the great I am, he never changes. So David would have known these commands and he's not denying those commands. Instead, what he's doing is giving us all a needed reminder of the balance, the balanced perspective that the scriptures give of God. 
There is this constant tension in the scriptures of the fact that God is gracious and unfailingly kind to those who repent, but he is also holy and just and he will not be mocked. He will be the judge of those who refuse to turn in repentance to him. Exodus 34 verses five to seven give us God's self-description, his self-revelation. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, this is God speaking about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Understand that God will be lavish and gracious with every sinner who repents, but he will not be mocked and his justice will prevail. The wickedness that David is condemning here in these verses is not simply a reference to the fact that people in general are sinners around him. If that were true, he would be speaking of the fact that we all deserve condemnation. We're all sinners. We're all in one sense, wicked. Apart from God, we are depraved, desperately needing his grace. And so this is not a general pronouncement of the fact that people are sinners. What David's particularly calling out is apparently there was a group of people at this time who had publicly and flagrantly set themselves up as God's enemies, unashamedly, wickedly calling out God by their mocking actions. They were publicly thumbing their noses at the holy God. And it has brought this righteous indignation to bear within David. This is what we call high-handed sin. It is sinning in a way that says, here I am, I don't care who is God that he should judge me. This is the kind of sin that David is condemning. And it should have the same effect on us that it had on David. It's a good time to stop and distinguish the difference between righteous indignation and unrighteous indignation. The scripture commends righteous indignation and righteous indignation in the scriptures are always connected with a person being offended by another's sins against God. That's what David's doing here. It's, it's indignation over the fact that people are sinning against the God whom he loves. Unrighteous indignation is personal retribution. It has settled bitterness and anger over someone's sin against me. That's not what the Bible commends. When it comes to personal sin, the Bible commands us to leave vengeance and justice with the Lord, to exercise graciousness and forgiveness. But when it comes to sins against God, when people set themselves up against God as his enemies, it ought to stoke within us a sense of indignation. This is not right. How can they treat my God this way? and say these things about the holy God of the universe who is unfailingly good and righteous and just. 
David's personalized application of the attributes of God in the preceding verses has now set him up to see the sins of these wicked, uh, rebellious people and to be indignant. And so he goes on to say in verse 19, depart from me, therefore men of bloodshed. Depart from me. He begins to, by calling on God to act against the wicked, but then he determines that he too will set himself apart from these who have acted this way. He's gonna separate himself from them. Depart from me. I refuse to take part with you. I will not be counted among your number. It brings to mind the opening words of Psalm 1. As Psalm 1 describes what the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous or the blessed and the wicked, Psalm 1.1 says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I think that's what David's saying here when he says, depart from me, he says, I will not sit with you. I will not take counsel with you. I, I will not listen to you or tolerate this kind of speech about my God. It's the idea that the righteous do not participate in the sinful deeds of the wicked. There is a sense in which the righteous ought to rightly separate themselves from those who have committed themselves to flagrant high-handed sin against God. Now again, the scriptures are balanced on this front. Don't misunderstand. We share the gospel with all people. We pray for all people, but we don't align ourselves with those who have set themselves up as God's enemies. How is it that these particular wicked people have done this? In what way has their wickedness expressed itself? Well, it turns out that primarily their sin against God has been a sin of speech. Look back at verse 20. For they speak against you wickedly and your enemies take your name in vain. They speak against you wickedly and they take your name in vain. And this makes perfect sense when we think about it in context. Again, David has in mind the glories of his God, who God really is. And he compares that to what's being said about God by these wicked rebels and he's incensed. It's blasphemy. It's wickedness to say these things about God, to mock God since the garden Satan has mocked God, he has questioned God's character and sinful men picked up the mantle and ran with it for the rest of human history of saying things about God that are false, they're blasphemous of questioning the character of God when he's only ever proven himself to be good and righteous and holy. Of course, we still see this today all around us. As you know, it's, it's considered almost universally to be bad taste to mock or ridicule false gods from other religions. But any jokes you wanna make about the one true God are all on the table. That's fine, that's good television. God's often the punchline of stand-up comedians. God's name is routinely chosen as the preferred curse word by the world. In the area of politics, God's name is thrown around like a rag doll as a means of gaining political advantage. You know, as I thought about it in our own context and tried to think of where do we see this kind of flagrant rebellion that ought to rightly cause righteous indignation in us when we look at our own world, 
There's a lot of things we could point to certainly in a fallen world, but I tried to put them into large categories. And I think there are three primary categories in our culture today in which we see this same kind of slanderous sin against God put on full display. And there, these three arenas I want you to consider for a moment. One would be the entertainment industry, obviously. All forms of entertainment seem to jump on the bandwagon of blasphemy and slander against God. Politics is the other realm, as I mentioned earlier. And then what we'll call academia, higher learning, higher education, quote unquote. Let me ask you, are you tempted to be either intrigued or entertained by the blasphemy that comes through these worldly sources? You know, we can't hardly watch a child's television show today without blasphemous ideologies being crammed down our throat. The supposed greatest thinkers of our day largely see God as an irrelevant myth from a bygone era, only fit for small-minded people who are afraid to think for themselves. That's what academia will tell you. And politicians, as we said, twist God's character and his word to present policies to the masses that they know the people want. And they even put God's name on those policies, policies that God himself says he hates in order to gain votes. So ask yourself, what is your disposition towards the flagrant sin of the world? Are you tempted to laugh and be entertained by the things God hates? Are you tempted to give consideration to philosophical arguments that are blasphemous towards God and his word? Are you tempted to give ear to politicians who have found a devious way to misuse scripture to offer you something they believe you want? What we have to understand is that the enemy, who is the, the prince of the air, as Paul would call him, is happy for us to blaspheme God in whichever way is most suitable to us. So if it's just a lust for entertainment, God just drowned out the worries and sorrows of life by constant entertainment. He's happy to give you blasphemous things to enjoy and, and laugh at in that arena. Or if it's more sophisticated and say, I, I don't do those things because I'm, I'm, I'm more here. I read and I study and I take classes and thereby I'm influenced by academia and experiencing the, the idea ideas of, of, of sinful fallen man in those ways, whichever way is tempting to you, the enemy really doesn't care. He's going to provide blasphemy for you to enjoy in every arena. My call to us today is to think like David thinks, to see through the smokescreen and the facade of the world and to be able to distinguish between what is holy and what is unrighteous and to say, I will not participate with the wicked. Don't misunderstand, I'm not saying you can't watch a TV show or get a degree. I'm saying we live with discernment in a fallen world. We don't participate and throw in our lot with those who hate God. David's so impassioned by this that it becomes personal in verse 21. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. We're not used to reading this kind of language very often in the scripture. These are heavy words to say I hate them with the utmost hatred. 
powerful statement. But again, understand this is not coming from a place of personal offense. This is coming from a place in which it's really gotten up David's nose as he's considered the reality of his God and compared it to the high-handed blasphemous statements being made about him from his enemies. And David says, if they're God's enemies, then they're my enemies. But also it's important to keep in mind, David is not saying that because they're his enemies, he personally is going to take vengeance on them. The only call to act against these people comes in verse 19 and it's directed at God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. So he's not taking up arms and taking his sword and saying, they're my enemies, so therefore I'm gonna, I'm gonna do God's work and cut off their heads. That's not what he says. But he says, I will set myself against them as an enemy. I will separate myself from them, but I'm gonna trust God to be God, God to do justice and God to slay the wicked. This reminds us of the biblical balance that we have to strike when we think about living in a fallen world. The Bible's clear, if an enemy, an evil person seeks your harm, you're not to return evil for evil, but instead to do good to them in the name of Christ as a gospel witness. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do, do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we have this teaching on how we personally respond to those who sin against us personally, who set themselves up as our enemies. But at the same time, we balance that with what we're reading this morning and understand that we ought to be righteously indignant to the flagrant sins of the wicked who thumb their nose at God. It should turn your stomach, in other words. It should cause a heat to rise within you when you see the world say things about God that you know are not true. We cannot forget that God's ultimate plan is to, to send his son. We read of it in Psalm two this morning. Jesus is returning and what is he returning to do? He's returning to set up his kingdom as a literal king and he will execute justice and his enemies will be mowed down and righteousness will reign. And as we long for the return of Christ, we have to understand what we're longing for we're longing for him and we're longing for a kingdom of righteousness, of real righteousness in which the character of God permeates the culture. And so that's why we don't feel at home here. It feels awfully strange at times, awfully cold and distant. It's because we are made for another kingdom. Let me ask you, do you pray for his righteous kingdom to come?
In one sense, I believe that's in David's heart here as he looks at the wicked and he's incensed. He longs for the righteousness of God to permeate the earth. And so as we meditate deeply on the glory of our God, it should produce within us a hatred for sin and a longing for Christ's righteous kingdom. But it's important to understand that this hatred for the wicked is not coming from a place of pride in the heart of David, but a place of humility. He's gonna show that to us. You see, we have to be on guard against the temptation of of self-righteousness that was such a part of the lives of the Pharisees. There are those who seek to present themselves outwardly as righteous by their willingness to boldly condemn the sins of the wicked. Perhaps they love to stand on a soapbox and talk about this fallen world and how in my day it wasn't like that and everything's gone to, to pot and, and, and uh, you know, Jesus just needs to come back and torch it all. They hate the wicked and even publicly separate themselves from the wicked in order to convince others of their own self-righteousness. But the self-righteous person is one who condemns the sins of others while knowingly harboring the same sins in their heart. That was the sin of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were big on soapboxes and condemnation of sins within the people. But Jesus called them out for their heart and said, you're like a whitewashed tomb because you harbor the same sins in your heart. David is not admonishing us to have an outward facade of indignation over the sins of the world without also matching that with a hatred for the personal sins within our own heart. One of the marks of a true believer that distinguishes a true believer from a false convert is that the true believer is more concerned about the sin in his own heart than he is the sins of the world. Doesn't mean he has no concern for the sins of the world. As we see here, we should. But at the end of the day, what concerns him most are the sins that still lurk within the crevices of his own heart. And that's where David turns us now, response number two, a hatred for unknown personal rebellion. A hatred for unknown personal rebellion. Here in verses 23 and 24, we have the grand finale. These are the verses, if you had any verses memorized previously from Psalm 139, it was probably these verses. In fact, it was these two verses that drew me to preach this Psalm in the first place. And I was gonna do one message really highlighting these two verses but I realized without the context of the rest of the Psalm, these verses don't hit in the way they should. And so now I want us to take all the things that we've learned and to bear them in mind as we read these two most famous verses and understand them in context. Here we read familiar words because we end where we began. David writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now notice some things right off the bat. We saw this again in verse one. If you look back at verse one, he says, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now that's a, the past tense, perfect past tense. He's saying it's already been done. And then he gives us the ramifications of what that means in the verses that followed. But notice back in verse 23, the verb tense changes. It's not past tense anymore. He says, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. There's a transition from the perfect past tense to the present tense. The sense of do it now. Right now, know my heart and search me. And really the significance of that verb tense change is, is crucial for us to understand to really get the meaning of the Psalm as a whole. What is it that David's been driving at this whole time? What, is, what has caused him to go on this journey on the character of God? What we see here in this urgent, earnest desire, search me, O God, and know me, is a call from David to God to search him yet again, not for God's benefit, not as if God's gonna find out something about David he didn't know before, but for David's benefit. David says, do now what I have just seen that you can do in a way that no one else can do. Do it again, O God, for my spiritual benefit. I'm inviting you, God, to examine me. And I'm inviting you, knowing full well that you're omniscient and that you're omnipresent and that you're my creator who's been with me from the beginning. Knowing all that I know about you now, God, I invite your examination. Search me. God, know me. This is his prayer. This is David's way of confessing that he is personally suspicious of his own heart. He humbly admits that he's helpless on his own to fully know his heart. This is consistent with the testimony of Psalm 139. We've already talked about the need to be suspicious of our hearts. We see this all over the scriptures. I just wanna read one passage from 1 Corinthians 4, verse four. This one is so helpful where Paul says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. That's a very important verse. What Paul says there is at this moment, my conscience is not convicting me of any sin. I, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but he doesn't stop there. He says, but just because my conscience is not convicting me of sin doesn't mean there isn't any. It just means I'm not currently convicted of it. You see that? How's he gonna fix this? The Lord is the one who examines him. The Lord knows the real reality of his heart. He knows the real reality of your heart. He knows the real reality of my heart. Our flesh is deceitful and we can be deceived about our current spiritual state. We can actually be allowing sin to go unaddressed in our hearts and be completely unaware of it. Now that's pretty scary, isn't it? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and your desire is to walk in holiness, it's pretty unsettling and unnerving to think that I could be living in active sin and not even know it. So what do we do? David has the answer. You invite the one who can see it, who does know it, to search your heart and to show it to you. You invite that process. As we've said before in this study, our hearts first manifest themselves in our thoughts. And so David also invites God to equally weigh his thoughts. Verse 23, not only does he say, search me, O God, and know my heart, but try me and know my anxious thoughts. I want you to be in my mind. I want you to see that place where my heart's manifesting itself. And I want you to analyze those thoughts 
and I want you to show me, God, what you find when you weigh my thoughts. The, ter- the term there, it's translated anxious thoughts, is a little bit misleading. I don't think necessarily that David's confessing that he's truly anxious as much as when you look at the Hebrew word itself, we could translate it as disquieting thoughts or disturbing thoughts. The idea is that David is feeling very heavy. His heart is weighed down and his, his thoughts are heavy within his head. And as he thinks about his circumstances and the difficult trial that he's walking through, he admits that he's unsettled. Things are, there's a little bit of an uproar going on in his heart. And he's concerned that while he's not aware of any sin in his heart right now, he's concerned that there may be some there that he's unaware of. This happens to us all the time, by the way. A trial is unexpectedly thrown on you. You're going about your day and your life and all of a sudden everything can change in a moment. And in the midst of that trial, your thoughts begin to compile one on top of another, on top of another. And the next thing you know, you're very disquieted in your heart, very topsy-turvy in your thoughts. And it can be a daunting task to try to weed through those thoughts and to, to compare and contrast them with God's word to say, are my thoughts good? Are my thoughts biblical? Am I sinning in my thoughts? David's admitting that his thoughts are disquieting and disturbing, and he's not convinced that there's not sin to be found in the way that he's thinking. But he's also admitting that if there's sin to be found, he's currently unable to put his finger on what they are. And so he does the only thing that he knows to do. He asks the God who knows him through and through to search him again and to reveal what he finds. Have you ever had this experience? You ever walked through a trial and, and fought very hard to think biblically and yet you feel yourself under the weight of that trial and you, you feel down and downcast and depressed under the weight of it and you're fighting to think rightly and you're beginning to wonder, I think there's sin in my heart. I think there's sin in my perspective, but I don't know what it is. That's where David is. This is helpful for us on a number of fronts and it's important for us to model this invitation of examination from God in our own lives. Because when we encounter difficulties and trials, there are two primary unbiblical ways that we're tempted to respond. The first one is to resist self-examination. The weight of the trial is heavy and perhaps we don't realize that really God is using the trial for our spiritual good and we ought not to be so consumed by the circumstances themselves that we forget to look for the ways that God intends to use it for our spiritual good. And when we do that, we just resist self-examination. We say, I'm gonna put that off because things are so heavy right now, I can't really deal with my own heart. That's one wrong way we respond in trials. The second wrong way that we're tempted to respond in trials is to justify sinful responses because it's so hard. When things get difficult and our lives by any estimation are hard and the trial is heavy, we can begin to justify sinful responses. And then when anyone, including our own mind, suggests that we should seek to honor God by the way we're responding, we take offense to that. How could you be so insensitive? to try and speak truth to me in a moment like this. But David doesn't do either of those things. Instead, David begins by first focusing his full attention on the character of God. 
That's what we've studied so far. Who is God is where he goes. Then that leads him to a rightful hatred for sin. And then that leads him to invite God's self-examination so that he can know that sin, confess it and walk in righteousness. That's the pattern for dealing with trial and temptation that we learn in Psalm 139. Fill your mind with the character of God. Let that produce within you a rightful hatred for sin and then invite his examination that you might forsake the sin that remains in your heart. This is how we respond. We understand that it, this examination is looking for sin because this is how he describes it in verse 24. This is what he hopes God will do through the examination and see if there be any hurtful way in me. We could translate that as any grievous way. The idea is God, is there anything when you look at my thoughts and my heart that grieves you? Or in other words, is there any sin that remains there? And David wants to be made aware of it. It's important to understand then as we put all this together from verse 19 down through verse 24 that David is equally concerned about the sins of the world as he is about the sins in his own heart. And it's the sins of his own heart that really captivate his attention fully. How does God reveal our sin to us? How does he show us if there's any hurtful way in us? Well, a primary way that God does that is through, through means that we'll talk about, but ultimately brings conviction to your conscience of sin. He highlights that to where you know it inside, something's wrong, that's wrong. So really what David's praying for is a sensitive, biblically trained conscience. Help my conscience to sound the alarm, God, that I'm not thinking rightly. And we train our conscience, the means by which God trains our conscience and causes our conscience to sound the alarm is as the spirit helps us understand the word of God. As the spirit illuminates the word of God, it trains your conscience so that your conscience is more and more in line with God's revealed will. And then it sounds the alarm when it should. David's inviting this process, inviting an informed conscience. When's the last time you asked God to reveal hidden sin in your heart? Is that a prayer that you pray? When you read the scriptures, do you take the extra step of sitting and meditating on what you've read so that you can apply those truths to your heart and really test yourself with that truth? It's so easy to read our, our Bible in the morning or whenever in the day you read it as just something we're supposed to do. But that's not the point. The point is that God would use the word to teach us of himself and reveal more of ourselves and how we ought to walk more faithfully with him. So he works through the word in our conscience, but also we see in scripture, it's wise to invite the input of mature believers. One of the ways that God helps us see ourselves is through the benefit of the body. In Proverbs 20 verse five, it says this, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water but a man of understanding will draw it out. That is a wise man is able to help ask questions and talk to you in a way that helps draw out what is hidden in your heart. We're often blinded to our own sins and others in our lives can see them very clearly. 
And we do ourselves a service when we invite God's people to speak into our lives. Sometimes when you're walking through something and you're, you're curious as to whether or not there's sin in your heart, one of the wisest things you can do after having prayed and studied the word is lay that in front of another wise believer and say, here's the truth of my situation. Here's how I'm responding. I don't know that I'm actually responding in the way God would have me. Please speak truth into my life. Invite that. And so we have it, the primary ways that God reveals this to us or through prayer, evaluation of our life according to the word and wise counsel from mature believers. But as David closes out verse 24, I want you to understand he doesn't stop with just asking for his sin to be revealed. David actually wants to walk in godliness. He doesn't just wanna confess his sin. He wants to be new and, and different. Verse 24 ends this way. Here's the other result he hopes will come out of this examination by God and lead me in the everlasting way. I want you to show me the grievous way that's in me, but then God, I want you to lead me in the everlasting way, the eternal way that is righteous. I wanna walk in righteousness. This too is the consistent testimony of scripture. To be godly, to walk in spiritual maturity, we cannot be simply satisfied with acknowledging our sin only. There are many who feel that they've walked in godliness simply because they confess their sin. But confession of sin is not walking in godliness, confession of sin alone. Those who are truly godly confess their sins to God and to others and then proactively seek by God's grace to put off those sins and to put on righteousness so that there's actual change. They go to war with that sin. This is one of the key differences between what the Bible calls worldly sorrow and godly repentance. Worldly sorrow essentially is acknowledging your sin, but then feeling sorry for yourself, self-pity, grieving over the consequences that your sin has brought in your life. Godly repentance also res results in grief over sin and confession of sin, but then it leads to proactivity of putting off that sin and feeling grieved over how our sins have affected God and how they've affected others, not primarily how they've affected us. So let me ask you, which of those best describes the way that you most frequently respond when sin is revealed in your life? Do you find yourself regularly confessing the same sins over and over without any real pattern of change in those areas of your life? Do you find yourself wallowing in self-pity over your sin or beating yourself up for days on end until you feel like you've sufficiently beat yourself up enough to let your conscience be clean? When you sin, do you find yourself growing angry and bitter over the consequences where you're just rehearsing how hard it's made your life now that you've been caught in this sin? None of those describe biblical repentance. All of those are worldly sorrow Biblical repentance takes the next step of not only saying, God, show me my sin so that I might confess my sin, but God then lead me in the everlasting way. Let my feet not run down that path anymore. Let me forsake my sin and put forth proactive effort to walk in righteousness. Are you in the practice of analyzing your heart for sin then confessing that sin and seeking to proactively 
forsake that sin. This is the call of Psalm 139. This is why John the Baptist would say it this way to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, beginning of verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's he saying? These are those who, who, sh- who, who said and proclaimed to be righteous. They, they put themselves up as righteous. And what he's saying is, if you are truly repentant then, repentant, then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Your life should be different, Pharisees. You're not actually righteous. You're just giving lip service to being righteous. Listen, anyone can put up a facade of self-righteous behavior, but only those who've been redeemed by God and therefore strengthened by the power of his spirit can demonstrate real repentance in which it bears fruit of godliness, true lasting heart change. And so let me ask you this morning, what is the truth about your heart? As God searches you, to reveal any grievous way in you this morning, what does he find? Have you ever truly come to the place of genuine repentance? Not just an acknowledgement that you're a sinner, not just even a willing to confess some of the sins you've committed, but is your heart torn apart at the idea that you have sinned against a holy God a good God who made you in your mother's womb, who knew you before you existed? Is your heart grieved at the thought of of sinning against such a God? And have you understood that the only way to reconciliation with this God is through the provision of his son, Jesus Christ, that God has made the way for you this morning if you would turn from your sins in true repentance, believing that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is your only hope, then and only then, Will you be forgiven of your sin and made new and given the gracious gift, not only of forgiveness, but of being strengthened to walk in the everlasting way? This is the good news of the gospel. Is that true of your heart this morning? As we draw this to a close, let me just remind you in summary what we've seen about David's response to his meditations on God. First of all, it provoked within him a hatred of the sins of the world, the flagrant sin of the world. But secondly, it provoked within him a hatred for the hidden sins within his own heart. A high view of God produces a burning hatred for sin. If you don't hate the sin of the world and the sin in your own heart, the place you need to go next is to review your view of God. Because when we see God rightly, it gives us 20-20 vision to see our sin. And when we allow our view of God to be low, we won't be all that bothered about our sin. But when we think intently on the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of our creator God, we will begin to see sin for what it is. And so as we apply really all of Psalm 139, here are the key takeaways from Psalm 139. Number one, meditate on the perfections of God. Meditate on the perfections of God. Your view of God dictates everything about you. 
So make it your habit to daily meditate on who he is. Pick an attribute of God and let your mind marinate on that attribute until it does its work in you. Fill your mind with God, stuff your brain full of him until your brain can go no further. And then secondly, invite his personal examination. Invite his personal examination. Get in the habit of being rightly suspicious of your own heart. Test your heart, analyze your thoughts against the word of God. Don't listen to yourself, preach the truth to yourself. When you read the word, take time to let that word meditate and marinate in your mind. Examine your life against what you've read. Take it with you throughout the day. Meditate on the person of God, yes, but also on yourself and how you need to be conformed to the things he's shown you in his word. And then thirdly, go to war with sin. Go to war with sin. We go to war with the sins of the world, as David mentioned, by means of prayer and evangelism. If you wanna go to war with sin, pray for God's name to be exalted, pray for God's justice to reign, and then share the gospel like crazy because that's the only thing that's gonna change anyone's heart. The only thing that's gonna change anything is if people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So share the gospel and pray. But when it comes to going to war with your own personal sin, we do that by confessing our sins and then proactively forsaking our sins. So do both. Share the gospel and pray and go to war with sin in the world and then invite God's examination and confess your own sin and proactively go to war with the sins of your heart. Don't allow yourself to wallow in self-pity when sin is revealed. Confess it for what it is without justification and then by God's grace, forsake it. Run away from it. In this way, do what Paul commends Timothy to do and fight the good fight of faith. Fight against your sin. Go to war with it. And may this be the prayer of us collectively as a church. Oh God, would you search us and know our hearts? Try us, God, and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord God, that is our honest prayer. These exalted thoughts of you that David has led us into in the weeks that we've studied this psalm have culminated in these heavy thoughts of truth of our own sin. And God, we pray that you would help your word to do its work. Forgive us where we're tempted to minimize our sin. Forgive us where we get so used to the sinful patterns of the world that we are desensitized in some ways to these things. God, help us to have the biblical balance of how to live life in a fallen world. You give us the command and the latitude to enjoy life even in a fallen world. We desire to do that and yet in doing that, we desire to enjoy it in a way that doesn't cross the line of joining ourselves with those who mock you and hate you. God, help us to know the balance between those things. God, give us a fervent love for you as we meditate on you And as that love grows in fervency, may it also produce in us a real hatred for sin, primarily the sin of our own hearts. God, may we be a people who are at war with the sin that remains 
until you return and set up a kingdom in which we will be righteous and the kingdom itself will be defined, characterized by the righteousness of our Savior. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But until that day, lead us in the way everlasting. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.